Randall's has everything you need every day. Make us your one-stop grocery store for all things fresh and delicious at a value you'll appreciate. For a special dinner this week, shop with your Remarkable card and get fresh snow crab clusters from the seafood department for only $6.99 a pound. And for healthy snacking, pick up fresh red seedless grapes from the produce department for just $0.97 cents a pound. Fresher seafood, sweeter produce, better prices. Randall's, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a continuation of the Division Capsules, and my two guests for the Pacific Division are actually former podcast partners, Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated and Kevin Pelton of ESPN. And so we go through the Pacific Division, talk about the offseason, and go through important moves, who got better, who got worse, and then we also go through... A season preview, so who's going to make the playoffs, ranking the teams 1-5, to five, and of course, as those of you who know the two of them, a lot of other discussions on various things. It was a lot of fun, and for those of you that like timestamps, there are timestamps for this. The conversation runs a little bit over an hour and a half, and we were brought to you by Blue Apron, fantastic food delivery service. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three free meals, and that includes free shipping. And also, a new sponsor to Real Jam Radio, Athletes Collective. It is a phenomenal apparel company. I've been lucky enough to try out some of their wares. And you can go to athletescollective.com and use the promo code REALGM for 15% off your first order. And now on to the conversation with Kevin Pelton and Ben Golver. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I can't believe we could fit this much ego on one podcast. It's unbelievable. <laughs> is, that, is that just me, or is that are you counting yourself in that as well? Oh, I, I think there's enough to go around. I think we got uh, we got three legs on this stool. Yeah, and we have a reunion of the Dontonia Wingcast, which is exciting for all three of us, probably. Definitely, I think there's a few diehard fans who will be uh, thrilled to hear the two of us back on a podcast together. Yeah, we're just going to break down Brandon Roy and Greg Oden, what we can expect from them in the 2011-12 season. Let's give you that uh, minute-by-minute breakdown of the night that Odin fractured his kneecap. Oh, no. And I lost my face. Yeah, and I was sounding like I was about to die out of out of sickness and just mental anguish, and that was a rough one. Yeah. So we're doing the Pacific Division, and I'll, I'll start with a really basic question. But in this division, who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? Well, I mean, I think the Lakers definitely got better. It would probably have been hard for them not to get better, and probably in the same vein, the Suns. The Warriors got better in terms of an absolute sense, even though it might not translate to more wins during the regular season. So, And Sacramento, I, they might have gotten a little bit better. I think they're the other team that has a chance. And the Clippers are the one team I think you can definitively say in this, in this division is probably going to be worse, probably just because of age. Yeah, I'm more, I'm more or less in line with that. I mean, I'd start with the Warriors. They definitely got better. Throw the regular season win stuff out the window. When you're aggregating that much talent at the top and you're extending your lead you know, between yourself and all the second-tier teams, whether it's the Clippers, Spurs, uh, the Thunder, whoever else you want to throw in that mix, I mean, that is just such a wide chasm. Uh, relatively, they just got so much better than you know basically any other team in the league. Yeah, the Suns and the Lakers, sure, you know, 
blue star ribbon. You know, you're not absolutely atrocious. You're only atrocious. And then in terms of the Clippers, they took a step back. I mean, they paid up a ton for guys who aren't really going to get your uh, your pulse or anything. I mean, and then with the, with the Kings, I didn't really see improvement from the Kings. I'd like to hear the argument for why they're better. To me, they just kind of took a sideways step. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I'm going by the fact that the RPM projections we released on ESPN earlier this week had them all the way up to 38 Plug wins. alert. Plug alert. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it, it was early. I don't I don't know who had like a four four minutes and twenty seconds into this podcast for that. But you know they they are deeper in NBA players I think than they were a year ago. The problem is that they just are almost all at small forward, power forward, and center. The upgraded shooting guard is actually notable as well as Aaron Aflalo is not the greatest player in the world, but is certainly an upgrade off of what was just a really problematic position for them last year. Bellinelli was a disappointment. You know, he underperformed relative to expectations, but he just wasn't that good. And the, But the big problem for them is that just guys who can create offense. I mean, I like to think of it as primary ball handlers, not point guards, but... They have Darren Collison and Garrett Temple, and that gives them more downside risk than they probably would have had otherwise. If they would have spent just some of that money on another guy there, I would say they would probably be substantially better as opposed to just possibly being better. And one thing the uh, RPM projections didn't factor in is the possibility that Collison could be suspended for an extended period. And, you know, with so little behind him, I think that would drop their, their projection pretty substantially. Yeah, I mean, they really got to hope that Collison avoids any serious issues. Otherwise, the Marcus Cousins, I think, is going to be their backup point guard by about mid December, <laughs> and that's never good. Uh, I do think this is a team also, though, in all seriousness. I mean, they got to be a preseason trade candidate team, right? I mean, just in terms of some of the uh, the log jams they've got and then the obvious hole at point guard, it seems like this is a team that maybe they're not done. Maybe they can kind of pull something out. Uh, I know Rudy Gay has been kind of in, in rumors and, and other things of those nature, but if this is really the team they're bringing into the regular season, that's just such a mess. And I know we said that about them before, but it just doesn't quite compute to me. Yeah, I don't think it computes in that sense, but also this is a really weird time to make a trade that big. Like if they wanted to do something smaller, like pick up whichever of the point guards that Utah doesn't really want anymore, so they have, you know, Neto and Shelvin Mack and behind their starters, the starter and backup, if they eventually want to sell on the lowish side on one of those, they could definitely be interested there. But like a Rudy Gay trade just seems like it would be more of like an early season or mid season team loses their starting three and does that. But at the same time, it's the Kings, and I'm using my standard like GM procedure rules for them might not be a good template. Uh, yeah, the Gay one is a tricky one because you, I think the the injury point is key there because there's no like real obvious team that you're like this is a team that needs Rudy Gay that's going to go out and give up a lot of value for him. But it's possible that that landscape may change at some point during the season. Yeah, that's the model as Marcin Gortat there. Like, Marcin Gortat was on the Suns. It didn't make a ton of sense. Then the Wizards had, I think it was Okafor that got hurt, and then they just had a clear-cut need and made it happen. Yep. Yeah, however it goes, they need to do something. I guess that was my point. I don't know if it needs to be big or small, but if you're rolling with this squad, you know, the imbalances that we're talking about positionally, especially the, the size and scope of some of the holes, and then just the wasted talent in terms of you can only play so many guys at some of these positions, and now you're you're kind of ruffling feathers because you've got all these guys just rotting on your bench, and you're a bad team regardless. To me, it's like you got to shake it up. I don't know if that happens, you know, right off the bat, or if it happens in one of those mid-December trades, like when they acquired Rudy Gay. But you know, whatever it is, they've got to change this. I don't think that they can roll with this roster for very long. 
it's amazing that after all this time and after Nate and I devoted an entire podcast about a year ago to fake DeMarcus Cousins trades, that not only does it really look like he's going to stay on this team for a little while now, I think it's more possible that he's around for, let's say, this whole season, which I think would be a massive mistake, partially because they're just, while he's an incredibly talented player, there aren't that many teams now that really fit the bill of having the right assets and having that fervent desire for him with, at this point, just two seasons and two playoff runs left under his cheap contract. And the longer you wait, the less that new team gets out of it. And if you talk to executives, I mean, this was the the sense that I got in Vegas. It, it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of appetite for bringing him into a locker room. So someone is going to eventually be willing, I think, to to take that risk. But it's going to have to be a team that's in a little bit of a desperate situation, I think. And you know, right now, after a summer of activity, no one no one really jumps to mind as being in that spot. Danny, what role did you think the the hiring of Dave Yeager kind of plays in your thought that he's going to be around for a while? It seems like personality wise, this is going to be a big upgrade from the Carl experience and some of the other guys they've had in there. You know, from what he's been saying, I guess, during the offseason, just his general approach to that job. And to me, it kind of seems like he's doing a pretty good job of maybe connecting with Cousins, establishing enough positive rapport where it doesn't feel like we're constantly on the clock ticking down uh, to a trade scenario. So, I mean, do you see it kind of being a combination of not as much uh, interest outside at this point in time in terms of his contract, but then also maybe an increased interest to try to keep him happy and make it work uh, with the coaching change. I think it's both of those things. The market being a little bit depressed gives them an additional reason to wait, but also wanting to really see how this works. And from what I've been able to tell, and I don't have particular sources in the organization, the Kings have been pretty optimistic about DeMarcus Cousins the whole time. I think that's ill, that's ill-conceived optimism, but it's optimism nonetheless. And so I think they want to really try this out, think maybe he's so happy, because realistically, the chances that they get somebody as good as DeMarcus Cousins when they trade him is prohibitively unlikely. And so if you want, if you have that guy, it is kind of your duty to hold them and do the best that you can with it. And while they've finagled that for years now, basically since the day they drafted him, I'm sure there's a part of them that really wants to see this work. Jaeger's a good coach. He connected well with the players last year in Memphis, though that was an older team. And so you want to try that out. And so if the market is depressed, then you're kind of sitting there, well, like, what, why are we why are we burning at this point? We can wait. But I think the the move that hurts them the most in terms of this is Boston signing Al Horford because Horford and Cousins could work, but I don't expect it to, and I don't expect that to be how they use their assets. And why Boston was such a great fit is that they had so many assets that they could have even given up some of their lesser stuff and had it still be plenty for the Kings. And if they're off the market, it not only takes out a big bidder, but it takes out a team that could potentially be used against other squads to try to ratchet up the price. But see, Boston is one of those teams that I'm just not sure, even without Horford, if they ever would have been willing to stomach, you know, taking the risk on bringing Cousins into that locker room with, you know, Brad Stevens. uh, is just not a, a Stevens kind of guy. And, you know, there's a perception out there that he got along well with Michael Malone. And I think relative to the other coaches that they had there, you know, relative certainly to Paul Westfall and George Carl, that was the case. But 
talking to people in the King's organization at that point, even that relationship wasn't really, I think, as strong as advertised. We still haven't found the person who can coach him. I liked, you know, the tone that Jaeger took the other day when he was on the low post and, you know, talking about him being a good teammate and uh, challenging him in that regard. And, you know, how, how Zach Randolph has talked about he sees a similar evolution from Cousins that he himself made. But still, until it actually happens, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Uh, I, I share your skepticism, and it's really just furthered by their off-season moves. I mean, again, I saw it as a kind of a sideways step-type move, and if you're not meaningfully increasing the talent around him, why do you expect him to be in a better uh, you know, a better mood about it, or why do you expect to get more buy-in from him? I mean, I guess you're hoping that at some point the age and maturity factor uh, kind of overwhelms and allows him to kind of step forward and, and not be so down on, on maybe some of the pieces that are around him, but... I'd be frustrated playing for them, too, uh, and I think I probably would have just as many explosions as Cousins has had, uh, if not more, given the talent that's, you know, one to four is usually around him. And also given the compromises he's had to make in terms of positions and who he's playing with and uh, the draft picks in terms of you know, the redundancies in taking centers, I mean, all that stuff would frustrate me to no end because it doesn't seem like it's passing basic 101, you know, basketball management. Yeah, the redundancy point that you just brought up is where I was going to go with it, is that Sacramento does have a fair amount of young guys. I don't think of them as a particularly young team, especially in terms of the rotation. But if you're DeMarcus Cousins, there aren't that many players who, if it really works, that makes sense with you. Papa Giannis, maybe Scal, just because Scal can do some different things defensively. But Ben McLemore is already going, he's extension eligible right now. So you're dealing with all of that. They don't have like a young point guard who could really blossom. So... A lot of the players who have potential directly conflict with you, Willie Cauley-Stein arguably being one of them, and there isn't that much perimeter untapped talent on this team, so it's hard to see how it works in the short term. And then they also made these bets like trading down in the draft and getting Bogdanovich, who won't come over this year, and that can't be a surprise, even though Vlade presumably has a better relationship with him just because of their their country connection. But I think that it's problematic to just kind of if you're looking at this through his lens to understand why he should be excited coming into this year except for having a new coach yeah i would doubt excited would be the word <laughs> you know i think <laughs> i think he was excited to win a gold medal uh, and i think you know it's, he's probably excited to be in really good shape and have had that experience and uh go into this season maybe thinking hey all nba first teams on the table for him you know you could put up some stats that we haven't seen maybe since a guy like Shaq from that position or Dwight Howard. I mean, there are things that are out there as carrots for him. It just really feels like a lot of them are individual accomplishments because he's being let down by his supporting cast. And uh, like you're mentioning, uh, and I don't see a ton of breakout candidates on this roster. I don't see a, a ton of guys that Jaeger's going to come in and you know, you know, you know, flip the switch and get so much more out of them. I think a lot of the young guys that they brought in terms of rookies and so forth, you know, they're not ready to be kind of impact guys. I mean, they weren't drafted with that in mind. Uh, so it does kind of feel like it's the same old thing. On the bright side, there is no Rondo, and I think that Rondo experiment last year uh, was something that I was never in favor of. It blew up at times, even worse than I expected, and I gave it an F when they, when they signed him. I think they did show a pretty good amount of discretion in terms of not trying to force it, uh, bring him back, try to make it work. They really did their new coaching staff a solid by uh, you know, letting him go. The problem was they just forgot to bring in any other point guards, and that's just not going to work. Yeah, and they let you Seth don't believe, Curry go. You don't believe in Garrett Temple? <laughs> no, I don't. 
Kevin, you were I don't worry about the Garrett Temple. <laughs> Kevin, you were as bothered by the Seth Curry thing as I was, I think. Just the fact that they had him on restricted rights and just basically just let him go. Yeah, I mean, I, he, he proved last season that he's a guy who can play in this league. I mean, he's got, he's got his warts, you know, especially at the defensive end. But uh, he, I, he's likely better than whatever guy they have not yet invited to training camp is probably going to make this team as a third point guard. And I think his ability to play off the ball meshes reasonably well with Rudy Gay. Rudy Gay likes having the ball in his hands. Cousins does too. And so having a having a guy who defends point guards and can hit open shots that doesn't demand the ball could actually work with this team. It's a great example of just antagonizing Cousins, though, isn't it? I mean, Cousins is out there in post game interviews saying, you know, Gray works, uh, Curry. Uh, we don't understand kind of you know kind of taking subtle shots at uh, George Carl's comments about you know Curry's future in the NBA and so forth. Clearly standing up for his guy, and Curry is not an expensive price to keep him, and then he just walks out the door immediately, uh, sort of after his little mini breakout, uh, you know, down the stretch. I mean, it's just one more thing of your cousins where you're like, oh great, that was cool, that was a really fun two months. Glad we did that. That's like his entire Sacramento career. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, and that's why I'm I'm really challenging the assertion that these guys got significantly better. No one said the word significant. Okay, well, better enough to say that they were better. <laughs> Plausibly better. Plausibly better. <laughs> Something definitely better is Blue Apron. Blue Apron is a fantastic product. is a food delivery service that brings a, a combination of really wonderful factors. It's an amazing way to build cooking confidence, which is something that's near and dear to my heart as somebody who loves food but was not particularly adept at cooking it. And also fresh ingredients and no food waste because they give you exactly what you need and they're incredible fresh ingredients. Last night I made a shrimp corn and potato boil. I've never made anything like that before. It was really tasty, had a, a great salad with it. And that's something else that Blue Apron is incredibly strong with is the vegetables. I'm admittedly not the biggest vegetable fan in the world, but they consistently do a great job last night. It involved green beans and tomatoes, and it was excellent, surprisingly good, great aioli, which is another strength of Blue Apron stuff. And so you can try it out for yourself. Go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals for free, and that includes free shipping. So you can try it out. Hopefully you love it as much as I do. You can go there, blueapron.com slash realgm, Put in your information, and then hopefully you continue and go on with the subscription. And it is an absolutely fantastic product. Now back to the conversation. A move, so that could be a, a draft pick, a trade, a signing that stood out to you from one of these specific division teams. In terms of what? Just whatever. Something that was that was interesting. If you want, I can start it out. For me, the one that was really surprising was Mozgov. And that they identified him as their center was shocking just because of the injury stuff and there is a rationale behind it but then setting the market with him was a surprising decision I think it was it ended up working out very poorly for them but also in some ways the biggest impact of that for me was it changed that plus the the Jordan Clarkson thing the way they structured his contract writing off 2017 for the Lakers was one of the most surprising things that any team did this summer and not even just 2017. I mean, it's, you know, Clarkson only would have been useful for that one year having him on if they could have managed to get some sort of an Arenas offer and, and match that. But, you know, there's not a ton more cap space that they're going to have available in 2018. Lou Williams is up. 
you know, Nick Young's contract is probably going to be stretched. So that's not going to matter. And then at that point, Julius Randle's up for a new contract, and you have to start figuring out what you're going to do with these young guys. So that's what uh, it's it's really for a while down the road potentially that they're not looking at the ability to pair two free agents. And which to me, if I was the Lakers, I would always want to have that ability unless I was already a contender. Hey, Danny, I got a question for you in, what, in terms of what you said about the Mozgov signing. What is the rationale? What is the best-case, most favorable explanation for why they gave Mozgov the contract that they gave him? I want to hear that. They saw his 2014-15 as the pertinent season because in 2014-15, for large stretches, he was quite good. He could protect the rim. He was active offensively. And he actually, before the Warriors played him off the court late in the 2015 finals, he did a good job. You know, he, he was a guy who could attack when they played small. He did a decent enough job until they realized how they could attack him. And so if you believe that his 2015-16 season, the most recent one, was an aberration because he was rushed back and he wasn't ready and he wasn't 100%, then if you saw that and then how thin the market was in terms of like real starter quality centers, especially if they didn't like Biombo that much, which seems possible, then there weren't that many guys. The problem is I think they were the only team that decided so heavily to basically say, so if you're trying to wait two seasons ago versus this season, you know, maybe even if you waited at 75-25 towards the prior season, that still wouldn't get you to that contract number. And so I think that's the issue that they did is that they basically threw out last season and that's dangerous when a guy is older. I think Mozgov's 30 or 31 now. Yeah, I guess that's sort of where I was coming from. Is it didn't make a ton of sense age-wise in terms of his career arc and, and some of the other guys that they're trying to build around. Uh, it didn't make a ton of sense in terms of durability and reliability given last season and you know what tends to happen once the wheels start to slowly fall off. Like That doesn't usually go back the other direction immediately. I thought style-wise, in terms of what he was able to do in that 2014-15 season, so much of that was LeBron-dependent, right? So now are we expecting a guy like D'Angelo Russell to be able to get similar stuff out of them when they're running two-man game you know, right off the top? So you're, you're really getting Mozgov at his best, which is what you're really going to want in the first couple of years of these contracts because age is going to start to kick in you know, pretty quickly after that. And that's asking a lot of a guy like Russell uh, at this point of his career, especially with a new coach and, and just the trials and tribulations he went through last year. I guess it's possible. I wouldn't necessarily be banking on it. And then in terms of just style of play, 30-plus, coming off you know, leg stuff, now do you want to run up and down with a bunch of young guys like Randall and Russell? And, and you know, presumably that's how they're going to want to play, bringing in a coach like Luke Walton. You know, is that going to be a fit? And is he going to be able to you know, remain on the court in that kind of a system? I mean, all those things to me are just such red flags that you would have thought at some point they would have accumulated so many red flags it would have just, like, pushed the stop button or at least pushed the pause button on this signing. And the, and the, the most surprising part about it is what you mentioned right at the top. is that it happened right off the bat. Like, it was the very first thing that they uh, basically anybody did. Uh, I just don't know how they got there, and I don't know what the rush was given the number of other centers that were out there, especially other centers that maybe would have made more sense uh, as fits you know, with their timeline and with their needs. So uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I think it was certainly one of the most significant moves in the Pacific over the summer, and I think it's probably the runaway in terms of the worst move. I'm not sure what else would be up there. Taking Papianis 13th? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it's a matter of scale, though, right? Because, like, right. Bobby Giannis just never plays in the NBA, and he just keeps calling and sick like he did from his first summer league game. You know, it'll be a blip. It'll be like the Royce White situation in Houston, right? You can kind of survive that. As you guys have talked about, there's, like, multi-year implications here if this goes as poorly as a lot of people expect it to. Wait, what about the Warriors re-signing Anderson Varejao? That just hurts my heart. But but I'd say, to me, the, the worst one that I can think of off the top of my head is, is Evan Turner. And the reason for it is something very specific. And it's that Portland's cap space was going to dry up eventually. And the fact that they got Turner with that money means they can't get anybody else with it. And I think he's a terrible fit. So that's a little bit different than the Lakers, who will, just because they have so little committed overall, they could shed a thing or two if they really had to. Whereas for Portland, they're pretty much done. And so I think that it, while Turner is a substantially better player to me than Mozgov and, and a better fit for them than Mozgov is for the Lakers, that's a more potentially damaging move because the Blazers are also a lot better right now and they're on the, sh- the short end. Like they're on the, they're towards their peak right now, as crazy as that sounds. Like the next two, three years are their time. I went, I mean, sorry, I said Pacific Division worst move. That's why I was kind of limiting it to that. But I'm with you. I mean, the the Turner one was a head scratcher, and there were some other ones around the league that probably could could rival Moskov in turn, or even surpass it in terms of like long term impacts and and just kind of head scratching nature. But you know, the Pacific didn't see a ton of like real expenditures. And when you're, like, lining them up in terms of dollar value and it's, like, Kevin Durant at the top and then Mozgov is, like, pretty shortly after him on the list, it's like, what the heck are the Lakers doing? Something else that talking with with Kevin before this brought up, and sorry to poach a part of your player profiles, is that Julius Randle was the worst mid-range shooter in the league this past year. And so what (laughs) Timothy Mozgov does is he's a a pretty solid pick-and-roll role role guy. But if the player next to him is somebody who you don't have to respect their shot, then you don't even have to really worry as much about that because you'll have health defense, and Mozgov is not so good a passer that he can make that kind of tic-tac-toe. So that's another big concern. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of fit problems here with this. I mean, we haven't, we haven't really talked about defense. You know, the fact that how are they going to defend a pick-and-roll? Like, D'Angelo Russell can't really get over picks that well at this point like like many young guards Mozgov isn't going to be able to show it seems like basically anytime you want you're going to be able to get a pull-up jumper against this Lakers defense good thing there aren't any players in the Pacific Division that are really good at pull-up jumpers none that I can think of yeah the Lakers are just going to install funnels when they play defense so that the ball can just efficiently go into their own hoop and they can come back down and play offense more uh, with, with greater quickness because, oh so the Rockets yeah, defense I don't see really yeah, basically. But I think they could be worse than that. I think they're going to be the worst defense again in the league, don't you? Kevin, what are your projections say? Uh, that seems likely. I am not sure off the top yeah, of my I th- head. Yeah, I think they're worse than the Rockets because the Rockets also have they have rim protection. Like, Nene is a, a solid defender, especially if he's playing fewer minutes. We don't know what his role is going to be. Capella should be all right. And... The Lakers also, like, they have Dang, who is a little on the older side, you know, 31 now, gonna had had a lot of injury stuff in his in his past. So the, all of that will kind of fit together. And their perimeter players, like Clarkson, seems like he could eventually be all right defensively. He's been bad under Byron Scott, but so is basically everyone on this team. So I, I think part of it, though, that will help them, I think I've said this before, though, is that when Kobe was on the team and he, after he got back from his injuries, he just wasn't really playing defense and Byron wasn't holding him accountable for it, that just having a new coach and having that kind of a, a sea change, just a lot of those guys being out, will take out the 
kind of the excuse that some of them might have used for not trying as much as they should. So players like Larry Nance and Jordan Clarkson and maybe Russell could at least get better on that part of it, which is an, a significant aspect of defense. Can I give you the punchline for that, that projection question? They're, uh, not only are, do they have the worst RPM projected defensive rating, it's 1.5 more points per under possessions than anyone else in the league. Nice. <laughs> exactly. Well, there you go. And I, I think your point, Danny, is, is a smart one. I think you're going to see a lot more investment and just kind of consistency from the Lakers guards because they were jerked around all season last year. It kind of didn't matter. You know, when Kobe's taking certain games off, uh, you go into a road trip or I guess a home stands really because he, you know, he played most of the road games. But like, if you don't know you're going to play, you don't know what your role is going to be, you don't know how many shots you're going to get. And then all of a sudden they're saying, oh, Kobe's not going to play tonight, so go out there and you know try to score 24. I mean, that's not fair to young players. Uh, especially when Byron Scott is the one kind of making these requests and then kind of going to the the media after it doesn't work and kind of you know bashing you pretty straightforwardly. So uh, the coaching change was absolutely mandatory, and they made a good pick there. Uh, I think it's going to take multiple years to really play out, obviously, but I do think you're going to see better investment from the guards. But I also think a lot of their guards are offensive-minded players. You know, guys like Clarkson and Russell – I mean, even without the distractions, I think they're still going to be pretty, you know, rough defensively. And if you're the Lakers, I think you're you're really just trying to outscore the opposition. You know, pile up points on a good night and, and hope that you can do that enough to to not have quite as ugly of a record as last season. You know, can we talk about a couple of uh, I think contrasting transactions in the Pacific Division here? So first off, we've talked we brought up Dang in the context of the Lakers, and I would contrast him with the signing of Jared Dudley in Phoenix. Dang got, I believe, off the top of my head, four years, $72 million. Sounds about right. And Dudley got three years, $30 million from the Suns. Yes. And, you know, both guys were combo forwards who are more effective as power forwards. So not only did the Suns pay Dudley less money, they're playing him in the right spot because he'll likely start the season as power forward ahead of their young guys. Dang is going to play small forward in L.A. where he was wildly ineffective last season and only figures to get worse is his, his quickness diminishes. So... The Lakers are paying a lot more, using the player worse, and you know probably not even getting as much veteran leadership as Jared Dudley is going to offer the Suns. To me, the contrast between those really highlights what a great signing Jared Dudley was for Phoenix. I'm with you on almost all that, except I I do wonder, you know, is Luke going to be smart enough to figure out the fit stuff? You know, and, and are they going to find a way where you can kind of play him at that for you know alongside Ingram and just try to maybe use their collective length as an asset. Uh, I could see that happening. I mean, I understand they're committed to some of these guys, whether it's Nance or Randall. Or uh, e. You know, I'm just, yeah. Oh, God. Well, I wiped that part out of my memory already. Uh, <laughs> but personally, I've always been a Randall skeptic, you know, and I don't see that really changing this year. And I think he's kind of at the, the time in his career where it's like, if you don't take a big step forward, you no longer get that locked in starting job no matter what i mean you can start to say okay could he be the sixth man could he be a guy you run the offense through in the second unit uh, if things aren't working so if he comes back the same player uh if i was the lakers i wouldn't be like rushing to use getting out of position 100 percent of the time i'd be you know trying to experiment and, and see what you can get out of them because you are paying them a ton of money i don't know if that's how it's going to play out but i'm not going to say 100 percent they're going to get you know poor positional fit from him quite yet although that is probably the most likely scenario. 
and that's a fair point. I mean, maybe that's a way, especially as Dang ages and as you figure Ingram eventually becomes the starter at small forward, you know, commands more playing time there. It's a way that both of those guys can make sense. But I, I don't see much of that happening this year. Yeah, and it also has the problem of when you think about the Dang-Ingram combination is that one way of thinking of defensive assignments, this is why I had that whole thing with Paul George at power forward, is the other team's just going to put their better defender of those two on the better guy. And so that might, as soon as that becomes Ingram, that's going to be really hard for him, you know, that he's going to have that. That's part of the reason why I thought Ingram would end up at the power forward eventually, is because just if he can be a straight forward, there aren't that many people who will defend him as well. But the Lakers have an army of guys that are paid more, and actually, that they, if you consider Ingram a four, they're actually kind of weak at the three. And so that is something that can resolve itself over two, three years, of course. But right now, I think he's going to be playing pretty much straight small forward, and that's a challenge. And, and the point that Kevin brought up in terms of leadership, I think, is also important here, and that... Deng certainly has a reputation as being a really good guy, and, you know, he's a part of those successful Bulls teams. Dudley has had the role of being a gregarious guy and helping, you know, young guys move along. He was, it was reported this week that he was one of the people who helped kind of moderate some of the stuff with Wall and Beal, and that makes sense. You know, he's a, he's a guy who can do a lot of those things, and I think that would have been a, both a better fit with their young guys who kind of are more of that ilk and with Luke Walton, because then Dudley could take more of a vocal leadership role, whereas Walton is in a, a, he's a leader, but he's a very quiet kind of guy. He's a very easygoing guy. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think that the contrast that we're drawing here, it's a pretty clear one. I mean, I think Kevin nailed it, kind of big picture. So what do you guys see as Ingram's role, though, uh, out of the gate? I mean, Kevin, it sounds like you don't think he's going to start out the gate? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's part of why they sang Dan, because they don't want to overload him with that right away. Backup three is what his primary role will, will start as. Oh, my God. I just got so disappointed about watching the Lakers this season. You think he's that far away from being able to just handle it? Did, did he look like a starting NBA small forward in summer league to you? No, he didn't, but I also feel like they just they got to so they have to kind of just do it. I mean, just throw him in the deep end and see how it works. I mean, you don't have to play him like gigantic minutes, but I get <laughs> if him used you, to it now. If you were going to do that, you wouldn't have paid Luol Deng eighteen million a year <laughs> for four years. I mean, if they had paid Deng that money for two years, then you can do thing handle it a little bit differently. But and that's the other part of the Deng issue is just committing that much long term money to a guy who we know isn't going to age well. And that, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I looked at. I guess I, I rationalize Dang's contract more as you're paying like a 40% surplus tax because you're terrible. Nobody wants to sign with you. And you're also convincing him to come to your team, not necessarily knowing that he's going to be a starter for the duration of the contract. So you're paying him a little bit more there to keep him happy. But I don't know if I were them, I'd think really strongly about just starting Ingram and, and seeing how it works out. I mean, they're not going to win. Uh, they need their draft pick. He's supposed to be a foundational player. Uh, we've seen other, you know, promising young prospects start from day one. I mean, why wouldn't you? And I guess if the argument is, well, because you paid Deng, I think that's a pretty bad argument. I don't think that's why you wouldn't start him, but I think that's an indication of where their mindset is about where Ingram is in its development. Well, I just got like 85% less excited about the, watching the Lakers this season if, if this is really the path they're going down. I mean, are you guys with me that you would start Ingram? Regardless? I mean, I don't think it, I mean, I don't think it's going to make that much difference in terms of playing time. I, I still think he's going to play like 20 minutes a night off the bench. To you know, yeah, I, is overrated. I'd play him 20 to 24 minutes, and certain times, just 
for fun, I would try to start. I would start Dangan Ingram and just see how it works to to do that with the starting lineup, get a little bit more shooting to see it. And and you ha- if you're Julius Randle at this point, he has not developed well enough to have that ego of being offended that every fourth or fifth game he's not starting. You know, if you, if you get into that kind of a circumstance, then it can work out. And I actually think their rotation without like if you just basically pretended Julius Randle was not on this team their rotation if they just had kind of a gap filler shooting three like let's say Anthony Morrow theoretically is their backup three that combination of Ingram and Dang and then Nance as the kind of the third forward but as the as a power forward and then having that extra gap filler I think that actually makes a decent amount of sense for a young team but Randall just makes all of it more confusing especially considering the organization's commitment to it I'm completely on board with starting Ingram and Dang as your forwards and just saying, sorry, Randall, you're our score off the bench, kind of proved to us that you can do anything. Not a gigantic knock on him. I don't think he's been set up for success very well, but so many of the things that you need to do if you're his size and shape in today's NBA, he just doesn't do. And you know, I think he's serious issues defensively. I'm not super thrilled with his playmaking. I know some Lakers fans like it when he takes off in the open court. I mean, that kind of gives me goosebumps sometimes and, and not in a good way. The shooting that we talked about, the shooting limitations, the spacing issues that's going to be created, his predictability going to the basket off the dribble. I and mean, there's just so many things that I just don't necessarily want to see if I'm a, a Lakers fan or a Lakers front office member. And I want to see everything that Ingram can do, even if it's tough and even if he's getting bullied uh, and even if he's not ready for the deep end of the pool. I just want to see that because I think that could actually get somewhere within two or three years. That's a pretty exciting place. I just don't see that with Randall. I think that's a consensus opinion of this uh, of this podcast trio. Yeah, but I don't think it's a consensus right. opinion outside of it. Uh, but we'll, we'll start. It is not. The player you think will be the best newcomer to his team that is not Kevin Durant? Well, this is kind of a cheap answer probably, but I might go with Zaza just because I think, number one, price and fit and everything. And he's got the most support around him, really, so he's going to be really set up for success in a way that guys on some of these other teams aren't going to be. I think he's a pretty good player, probably underrated these last few years. Clearly, he's not going to have to do very much uh, in that lineup, uh, given the amount of talent that's around him. So I think it's a situation where uh, he's going to have a much higher profile than he's ever had at any point during his career. I think he tends to appeal to local fan bases when he kind of goes from spot to spot. I mean, he kind of gets a cult following a little bit, so I could see that happening on a national stage just with the spotlight uh, that the Warriors bring. So I think it's a combination of uh, fit and underrated skills uh, that are going to kind of put him in a situation for success. I guess in terms of like just actual sheer value, it's probably Luol Deng, I guess. But none of the none of the additions on any of these teams made, I think, other than Durant, are game changers on their own. The Petrulia one was just a game changer in the context of, you know, when they first signed Durant, that if we can go back to the morning of the 4th of July, that you know, maybe nine to ten hours before we found out that Petrulia was going to sign there for the uh, room mid-level exception, like, it looked like they were legitimately going to be stuck at starting center. You know, like, maybe best-case scenario, you get a guy like Dwayne Dedman, who's very promising but has never really started on a regular basis in his career. So to get a guy like Petrulia, who capably fills that position is obviously not a perfect player you know the rim protection is going to be an issue but way 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 better than they could have realistically expected given their situation 
And something else that I, when, when I was going through stuff for my Warriors material for on Pachulia, that's potentially st- strategically important for the Warriors is that he can shoot free throws. So what that means that you can do with him is play him at different parts of the game. So maybe that like middle section of quarters when the Warriors might be in the bonus, they might not be. You get more comfortable with that. Whereas with Andrew Bogut, not only because he was bad at free throw shooting, but he was so cognizant of it that he often offensively played away from it that you get a little bit more creative freedom to use him in different ways. And so some of the times where Kerr would just move away from Bogut entirely, I don't think he'll have to do that at all with Pachulia. I mean, this is a pretty thin crop, isn't it, in terms of guys not named Kevin Durant who are big impact makers. I mean, I think Dudley's probably in this conversation. I mean, do we even throw a guy like Raymond Felton <laughs> in this conversation? Wait, wait, uh, Felton's, not even, Felton's not even, like, in the top three, or I guess he's, is he third among Clippers' minimum signings? No, he's not in the top three. It's Bass, Spates, and Anderson. But in terms of, like, who's going to have to play minutes and, like, do things for them, I would say he's going to have to be in that conversation. It's always an issue. Were you unaware that they re-signed it. Austin Rivers? I understand that they would, but do you like the ball in his hands regularly? I would I'm, not. Not, I'm not his dad. I think it'll be I'll think it'll be well, the Austin Rivers Jamal Crawford show for their bench. But one of the huge terrifying things uh, for the Clippers has to be what happens <laughs> if any one of their top guys, top guards gets hurt. Like Chris Paul is obviously the one, but if if Redick misses time, do you slide Jamal Crawford up or do you like you can't put are you gonna start Austin Rivers? Like that that whole thing is really, really weird, especially considering it's not like they have a small forward they can slide over because Wes is really all they have unless you consider Mbamute, and that would be a fascinating lineup, but I don't think it's one they'll ever use. Yeah, well, we saw what happened when when Chris went down in the playoffs. I mean, it was just an absolute disaster, and guys were bleeding, and it looked like, you know, the most painful possible experience uh, of basketball, and I would anticipate that happening again if it's either Chris or Redick, like you're mentioning. I don't know. I feel like he's going to have to play a role for them. I mean, they're constantly looking for stuff in that spot. I mean, they're milk, uh, you know, milking the the former Knicks point guard last year at Todd. Sorry, I'm blanking on his name right now. Prigioni. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think he's going to play. I don't know if it's going to be a huge role. Maybe not as big as Brandon Bass because you know they've always had front court depth issues. But you know, I think he's going to be in this conversation. For me, it's Dang, just because on the sheer value thing, as KP said, but. He's in such an imperfect situation that I, he might not have that kind of an impact. I just think he's the best player other than Durant that did it. And the Warriors are in this strange place where they are going to have opportunities for newcomers, depending on what they do at center. You know, we don't know exactly how that's going to work out and and how Steve Kerr wants to manage his bench because David West is probably going to play a fair amount in the regular season. He might get out of the rotation in the playoffs, but they're not so deep at the forward spots where they can afford just to do a lot of other stuff. So I think West will get will get some of those minutes because if they want to play kind of the core guys together more, then he's somebody they can slide into a second unit and can actually help them. Yeah, I think that, that yeah, along the same lines as Pachulia, same kind of bargain where better than they could have realistically expected at that point with just the minimum. And you know maybe they could have expected that because David West is now a uh, veteran minimum for hire uh, to whoever you know he feels like he has the best chance to have a good season with. But uh, still uh, another solid pickup for them. I was scaling my answers to this question uh, as for teams that are sort of relevant. You know what I mean? Because the Lakers and the Suns, to me, they're like not really – Whatever happens this season, even in a best-case scenario, these guys that they're adding aren't putting them into the playoff picture, right? I mean, they're far enough out where it doesn't matter. I mean, does anybody on the Kings jump out for this conversation? 
I mean, I'm not really an Aflalo guy. As I said, I'm not really a Temple guy. But in terms of, like, total value, I mean, a guy like Aflalo is probably going to pay a ton of minutes for them. I don't know. Matt, Bar- Matt Barnes is a nice pickup, but he's maybe their number three combo 3-4 three, on the roster at this point behind Gay and Caspi. And and Cud Tolliver could be useful, but I don't think he's going to be a pivotal part of the rotation. Garrett, Ta- Garrett Temple's the sleeper. Maybe he'll be the starter by the end of the year there. Yeah, okay. Well, again, that's pretty rough. And I, I really, I, I think this is just reinforcing the level of top-down dominance the Warriors had in, in this conference. I mean, do you have the, the wins added numbers on you, KP? Did Durant add more wins than every other addition for the other four teams combined? Uh, I don't have it broken down like that, but I would not be surprised if the answer was yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that doesn't even include, like, the, the fact that he'll play better in the playoffs and those wins are more important in that sense, you know. Like, that, that the value added for him is even greater because of the specific context. And, you know, it's it's such a crazy huge move. But the next question, I think, is one, and I like to phrase it in terms of the rookie you are most excited to see, not who you think is best, because... Sometimes the best one won't, you know, won't be playing, and sometimes the intrigue is somebody who is a little bit lower in the draft. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have a pretty biased answer because, like, I've been camp, uh, kind of caping for him to get to start and to play real minutes for the Lakers because I want to go to those games and be excited and, and experience it. I mean, I'm starting at the top basically with Ingram. I mean, I think because his summer league was kind of confounding to me, a guy like Bender would be in this conversation too. I mean, I didn't necessarily see – all that I was expecting to see from him having come in pretty blank for the the draft process on him. So I think that those two guys, even though they're the two most obvious candidates, I think, in this draft, would be my answers to these questions. In Ingram's case, because I do see a pretty high ceiling, and it's just fun to get in early uh, with guys like that. You know, I enjoyed the Kevin Durant in Seattle experience more than probably a lot of people did, even though it was a far cry from where he was two or three years later. It's still probably the second most of anyone on this podcast. That's well. I thought that maybe you know you weren't going to want to own up to that because it was so painful. But I'm sure you enjoyed it as well. And then you know with, with Bender, it's just kind of a different situation. It's like who is this guy? It's still the intrigue factor because there were so many holes in his game and he, and he kind of played so inconsistently. So many turnovers, missed shots uh, in Las Vegas, and he's coming from such a weird kind of background in terms of you know where he was playing last year, how much he was playing that all that just kind of makes him the biggest question mark to me, I think, in terms of the rookies uh, in this division, at least uh, interesting question mark. So those, those would be my two answers. I mean, I think you can make a case for a lot of rookies in this uh, in this con- division being interesting to watch. I mean, you know, obviously Bender and, and Ingram has, has been mentioned. There's a lot of intrigue about those two guys as the top two picks. But, you know, Chris is someone who got traded within this division. Uh, very interested to see, you know, what how the Suns balance the, the playing time of him and Bender. Are those two guys going to play together as forwards? Are they going to play together in the front court? Are they not going to play together this year? What what ends up happening there? Tyler Eulis, if he gets a chance to play in Phoenix, especially if one of Bledsoe or Knight goes down or gets traded midseason and he really gets a chance to run with that backup point guard spot. You, you and Nate Danny mentioned the other day that he was someone who's a potential second-round pick candidate for the all-rookie team, and I I think he's, you know, playing time is his biggest real obstacle to that. In Sacramento, they've got, you know, the three rookies. I can't say I'm too excited to see what Malachi Richardson is going to do this year as a rookie. But, uh, you know, Skull, he could be the ideal complement to DeMarcus Cousins in terms of 
a uh, rim protector who who can also stretch the floor on offense, even though Boogie now kind of does that for himself uh, at times, going out beyond the three-point line. And then Papianis, you know, if he gets in better shape for the regular season, is there more there than what we saw in summer league? I mean, are, are those guys even going to play? I think my question to Sacramento is, are any of those guys going to be rotation members? That's a valid question. By the way, the other guy I didn't mention is Zubach, who was a lot of fun to watch during summer league. And the real <laughs> yeah, casualty of this death was amazing. <laughs> no, Zubach was good. Zubach was yes, the, he was, he was the best. Know. He was the best European, best European big man from the Pacific Division that played in summer league. He that was is, better, better than Bender, better than Papianis. Yeah. So I would I, love I to just see him play. To his, his post yeah, yeah. Victim, victimization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jeremy Grant got him right. Uh, that sounds right. But, but so like, how, it was so memorable. You don't remember who actually had the dunk. Well, his quotes were so good afterwards that like it completely overshadowed the actual. Play. That he he died a little bit. That was yeah. him, right? Yeah. But so for, yeah, me, yeah, yeah. for yep. me, it was two guys. Scal, just because I've been on, I've been a Scal fan for such a long time. It'll be more of a Reno Bighorns that I'm excited to see. Like I think that's more of where he'll spend his time. And then the other one is Ulyss. And for me, Ulyss is more of an intellectual curiosity, just because I want to know if someone with his size and game will work in the NBA. And I think that's a more open question. But if it does, like what I saw in summer league was a player who who really can do that, who can eventually shoulder the backup load, and he was so popular among his teammates at Kentucky. And leadership is something that is very useful for a point guard. So Ingram is the star of this group, but I think I'm probably more excited to see Scal and to see Ulyss just because it's really intriguing. And that's something that that gets at me is the uncertainty. And and that's a little bit unfair to Ingram because he's uncertain too, though. Well, I'm with you on Scal. I think what you guys are saying about partnering with Cousins being, you know, a pretty clean fit there. You know, I actually like that idea, and I think Cousins should be spending more time on the block than he did last year. So, you know, from that standpoint, any space you can get if you're going to play kind of traditionally, uh, and Scout gives you some of that, so I think that makes sense. I'm just not sure he's really going to get the look. In terms of Ulysses, you know, Phoenix, I mean, how many point guards, have, or young point guards especially, have they either buried or squandered uh, in recent years? They've got so many guys who need to eat before him in terms of Knight, Bledsoe, and, and I think Booker, too, is going to really become a big-time playmaker for them in terms of having the ball in his hands, uh, acting as an initiator. Uh, so I just worry that, you know, Ulysses is going to wind up getting lost in the shelf where they're just going to kind of kick him down the road a little bit in terms of you know, tell him to buy his, you know, you know, bite his time and so forth. You know, I guess in an ideal world, you know, I would actually like to see Ulysses a lot, too, frankly. I thought he was really good in summer league. Uh, everything you're mentioning, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with. But I think it's gonna, if he's going to play significant minutes this year, I think that means that they traded Bledsoe uh, or they just you know, went into full-on tank mode down the stretch because uh, I just think that they've got so much riding on these moves. I mean, they gave so much money the night. They've got to give him every opportunity to succeed and play huge minutes. Uh, you know, they went through that tough negotiation with Bledsoe. Same thing. It's just like politics are kind of working against a guy like Ulysses, who's coming in as an easy to overlook second round pick. Plus, you've got a first time head coach who's probably going to want to ride his bets and, and keep his locker room behind him. Uh, I just wonder, opportunity wise, what's, what's going to be there for him. But, you know, that that will probably be a common refrain from Suns fans is please play Ulysses. That'll probably start by mid December. But Brandon Knight is always so popular among his fan base. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's tough. I mean, yeah. I, I was just like looking at... to him, though? 
I was just looking at the teams that were drafting late in the first and early in the second that didn't take Ulysses. I'm not saying a lot of them that they made a mistake, but just how many of those teams would be more interesting if they had done done things differently. Like the Kings with Scal is, diff- is, is its own thing. You'd be really fun on the Clippers. We just talked about that. The Warriors could have taken him. The Pelicans could have ended up with him. Like all those teams would have been would have had a better place for him than the Suns. But if he if he can get playing time on the Suns, it could really work. Well, what about the Kings instead of Malachi Richardson if they had yeah. ended up with both of those Kentucky guys? Yeah, that, I think that would have been great. And they, I mean, yeah. I would rather have Tyler Ulis than Papayanis right now. Like they should have <laughs> just taken Ulis instead of Papayanis. <laughs> we, I, I proposed to Kings fans that they they should treat it that they took Scal at I believe it was thirteen and they took Papayanis at twenty eight, and you know, to a degree that would be that would be more palatable for them in that way. But yeah, I mean, it, it's such a strange circumstance. Papayanis certainly has talent. Like he's not not this just scrub out there, but he's such a long term guy when they have so many other projects at exactly the same position, which also happens to be the position of their best player. I, I, it's hard to think of a direct precedent with this, especially when it's on a, what like, you know, if you think about the positions, it's just kind of stretching from one to five, where you can't really slide guys. You know, you can slide DeMarcus to the four a little bit, but it's not like, oh, you have a bunch of shooting guards or small forwards where you can make them play other positions. There isn't really a way to make this work. Yep. So it reminds me of the situation in Philadelphia, but I think it's even worse and deserves more scrutiny than the Sixers have gotten for their situation because you know who a lot of these quantities are in Sacramento. I mean, you went out and you added a guy like Kufus. You drafted Collie Stein, you know, knowing that, you know, Cousins was going to be your guy. Then you followed that up, drafting Papayanis, knowing that you had all these other guys already there. It's just mind-boggling, and I still don't get it. And I really do think these guys are going to have to make a trade. The Sixers also took arguably the best player available each time they did it. It's just that, you know, the way that it worked out was it ended up being a big man, which you never expect. And, I mean, incidentally, at the, the pick last year, there probably was a big man that ended up being the best player available. It just it was Porzingis instead. So, I mean, it, it is kind of amazing how that... Well, the real question here, though, is imagine how awesome Philadelphia would be if they had Porzingis. <laughs> that would be the greatest team ever. Porzingis <laughs> and Embiid as their starting big men would be the most... Like, I, I would just watch all of their games. And then Simmons yeah, is the wing. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe yeah. they wouldn't have gotten him in, the, in this scenario, but... No, they still would have been bad enough Simmons, to get Simmons. Starridge. Simmons, Sarich, <laughs> Embiid, Porzingis, and any fifth player is my favorite team in NBA. Well, history. just throw a no out there. Why not go all bigs? He's smaller than six foot ten. Yeah, it'd be incredible. Yeah, it's like I, I used to call it the West Virginia idea when a team would have all of their players about the same height because I think it was Bob Huggins at West Virginia when he had he played five guys or four guys that were six seven. And if you could do that with six ten guys, it would be a well six ten and then Joel Embiid and and Porzingis are like seven three. Oh man, that that I can't. I'm not sure I can think of a better lineup than that. Billy Billy Knight is offended. You're not giving giving him credit for this idea. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on to the regular season preview part of this podcast, I want to talk to you about Athletes Collective. I'm lucky enough to get to cover incredible athletes doing amazing things, but I also know that wearing the logo that they have on their clothing won't let me do those same things. And thankfully now you can get great quality, amazing fitting, active wear without those logos for 30 to 40% cheaper than the big brands by going to athletescollective.com. And when you hear 30 to 40% cheaper, that generally makes you assume that there's a, a downgrade in quality, and there really isn't. I've been 
lucky enough to try out Athletes Collective material for a little while, especially now in August as the schedule is worn down and I've been working out more. And so I've been wearing Athletes Collective material and I've been really impressed by how comfortable it is, how well it fits while I'm working out, and how well it absorbs moisture. So it does everything that I'm looking for. So I really think you should try it out. And also, you can go to athletescollective.com and use the promo code REALGM and you can get 15% off the order. So not only are you getting excellent fitting, great quality material for cheaper than the brands already, but you get another 15% off on top of all that. So again, you go to athletescollective.com and enter the promo code REALGM. Free shipping, free returns in the U.S. or Canada, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Check it out, athletescollective.com, real GM promo code. So we'll move on to the season preview part, and I think the first question has to go to Mr. Projections, and that's ranking these teams, the five Pacific Division teams, one to five. I, I like it in terms of regular season record, but if you want to use another rationale, you can. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Golden State Warriors are going to have the best record in this division and also be the best team in this division as well. I, wow. I think that uh, that's my hot – you're getting that fire hot take from me today. Uh, number two, uh, pretty obviously, the Clippers – I guess then maybe you could have some debate at number three, but I think the Kings, even if you don't think that they have uh, substantially improved from last season, are still a little bit ahead of Phoenix and L.A., who I think are probably going to be the uh, the weakest two teams in the Western Conference this season, and I would give the Suns the slight edge over the Lakers. Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to argue against that order. Uh, to me, it kind of came down to Kings or Suns. You know, if the Suns have perfect health, do they have enough to bump up above the Kings if there's early season struggles or whatever in Sacramento or Collison goes down and they completely fall apart? Uh, you know, I could see that happening. But I think if I had to bet, you know, both teams have equivalent levels of health and availability. I think I'd still put the Kings over the Suns at four. Definitely think the Lakers are fifth, pretty much no doubt about it. Uh, and I think some of that's going to be influenced by... I mean, if I'm them, I'm racing to the bottom again, right, with this draft pick situation, because why not? What are the better alternatives? And then in terms of uh, the Warriors and the Clippers, did you say there was a 21-win spread between the two of them in your RPM projections, Kevin? Wasn't it like 67 to 46 or something like that? That is correct, yes. That is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, this is something that we've considered like a rivalry for these last couple of years where their you know, games would be uh, early season tilts, would be something that everybody would circle on the calendar. Uh, and now you're talking about a team that's, you know, slightly above average versus one of the best preseason projections probably, what, in the last 20 years? Uh, the spread there is just massive. And uh, I guess it's been gradually developing, but sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact, you know, how far ahead of the, uh, of the rest of the field the Warriors have gone uh, within their division. I mean, I, I would still take the the under or the over on the Clippers record and the under on the uh, the margin between those two teams. I guess if you want to put it that way, I, I think there's definitely a scenario that evolves where the Clippers could become the greatest threat to the Warriors this year if you know San Antonio just has no prayer of stopping them with Pau Gasol is their their starting center, and uh, you know if Utah is not quite ready, then the Clippers could certainly be in that mix. I'm I'm higher on them than RPM is. Well, I'm with you, Kevin, but on the under, but it's 21. <laughs> that is a gigantic spread, you know. I mean, that was my point. Is like that's the spread between like the Clippers and the Lakers too, right? I mean, pretty similar. Uh, yes, almost precisely. So that I take that, that is over. Pretty wild. That 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, too. Bounce back potential just because, you know, people forgot about Blake. It feels like we haven't been watching Blake in a long time. I'm not even sure we mentioned him on this podcast yet. We've been talking for, uh, you know, a solid hour. You know, and he's arguably the, you know, if not the best and the second best player, not on the Warriors in the division. So, you know, from that standpoint, I do like their ability to beat it. I mean, they've consistently put up solid winning percentages during the Paul era kind of regardless of, of excellent health or average health or slightly below average health uh, for their core guys. So they're going to be in that mix. I think DeAndre is going to be in a position where he could even essentially be an all-star this year, depending on how things shake out. So from that standpoint, I, I like them going over, but still 21 win spread is, is pretty absurd. I mean, do we think that this year's Clippers are going to be better? I mean, I guess I don't know if we want to use last year's Clippers as the benchmark because we really never saw a healthy healthy Clippers team like you know we were expecting and hoping to see during the playoffs. But can they be as good as they were two years ago? When they were the three seed? Yeah, and should have made the conference finals. Yeah, I, I, be, I think that what's hard with them in, in that sense is just that they don't have a lot of guys who can outperform their expectations. I talked about this a little bit on the Reddit mailbag I did for Dunked On. But the problem is... They have a lot of players. Like I, I think the the way that Rock Devers was able to handle their minimum guys is really impressive. It's been true for a couple of years. So they have more depth, but they don't have those real. It's just different. It's a different type of team. And like Blake needs to be that guy. And I was trying to figure out a way to put this because Chris Paul is the most important Clipper to like to their success and all that kind of stuff. But I think Blake has the most variability. And that variability is incredibly important because DeAndre is pretty consistent, not only in terms of being on the floor, but what he does. So Blake, if he can be close to that, then sure. I, I think they could be the set, the the second or third best team in the West, be the best, biggest contender to the Warriors. But that's a really dangerous bet to make for a guy who's athletic and who missed so much time last year. You know, the sense that I had with Blake, just in general, interviewing him and just kind of seeing him around the team over the last few years, is it's just one of those feelings, like the takeaway is like, you know, he's better than this. Like, he's better than that mess that he was in last year. Like, he's not that guy. Yes, he did it. Yes, he really took, you know, a lot of hits, I think, in the media over uh, the off-court behavior and then just not being able to get right in the playoffs. But he, even when he was kind of playing through the injuries against the Blazers earlier in that, in that series, like games one and two when they were blowing the Blazers off the court, he had some pretty spectacular moments. I don't think he was even close to 100%. So you give him this entire offseason to get healthy. You give him every possible motivation in the book in terms of trying to you know, kind of set the record straight, clear his name up a little bit. I think he's a genuinely a pretty good guy. He's you know very funny and uh, you know good personality. You know I don't think that last year is indicative of it. It's not like he's got to just improve a little bit on last year. It's like last year was the anomaly. And if we go back and look at like the previous four seasons in terms of what type of a player that he was, I think he can get back there, no question about it. I don't think he's at the point where the injuries have accumulated so much that we have to start talking about decline. Certainly, he's not there sort of on the age curve yet. So I'm pretty bullish on Blake. I'm not saying that he's going to be like an MVP type conversation type of guy. I probably have him in like the five to ten range in terms of something like that. But I think the West is wide open, you know, for anybody to kind of make a run at number two. I think the Clippers have to be in that conversation, uh, and they do have a lot more continuity in terms of role definition than some of the other teams. Like the, the Spurs are going to have to figure a lot of things out. Like no Duncan, uh, you, there's not really any way you can just adjust to that. 
Manu being older, Parker being older, uh, Aldridge is probably going to have to play more minutes and use more touches than he did last year when he was able to kind of take it easy. You know, the, the training wheels off are, are off for Kawhi. We have a lot of guys who are going to be adjusting things. Thunder are totally out of the conversation to me in terms of this second-tier conversation. The Blazers have a lot of continuity. I'm not sure they have as much talent, though, on the top end as the Clippers. So I think if you're making the argument, like, who should be the number two seed in the West, I think the Clippers have a very strong argument that they should be the number two seed just because that trio of, of Chris Blake, DeAndre, and if you want to throw Reddick in too, is just so proven. I mean, I don't know if I buy number two seed just because I think San Antonio, the infrastructure is going to be good enough in the regular season. But if those two teams play each other in the playoffs, I, I don't know that, you know, I don't know who the favorite is at this point. Well, here's my, here's my problem with the Spurs, though, is that it's not just that they lost Duncan, but they lost basically every single big man who played in their rotation last year besides Aldridge. Like, of the fours and fives, he's the only guy that's coming back. So it's like the new guy is suddenly now the only returner. And that's kind of weird. I mean, whether it's West, whether it's Dial, Boban even, like you can understand why those guys moved and why they were willing to let those guys go. And, uh, you know, some people will probably be able to spin the, the Powell situation positively, uh, just in terms of his playmaking and scoring and, and so on and so forth. But it's just a lot of turnover for the Spurs where, you know, we have seen the structure you know, carry them through a lot for the last 10 or 15 years. But this is a different animal to me in terms of the quantity of new pieces and guys who are going to have to fill pretty significant minutes roles. We haven't really seen that situation. Uh, so I think it's uncharted waters a little bit for them. And I also think, you know, if you look at the Clippers ceiling, like if things go right, that could be a 60-win team. Uh, and I'm not sure that the Spurs quite have that ceiling this season. I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I like it. A question that I think we'll all agree on, how many teams in this division make the playoffs? I just think two. That's kind of what I think Kevin was hinting at with his 1-5 to five rankings. You know, I, I think... I think it's a very top-heavy division. I'm not really buying what the Kings are selling. I don't think the Suns have quite enough, even on best-case scenario, to push into the playoff picture. I think they could make it interesting, but something always seems to go wrong with their core guys down there, and new coach kind of spooks me a little bit. Uh, so to me, it's two. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's almost any question that it's going to be two uh, from this division. I mean, Sacramento is the one team that has a chance to make it three. Don't really see a scenario. It would have to be just massive injuries where either the Clippers or Warriors missed the playoffs, so pretty comfortably two. There's a, a chance that either the Kings or Suns make it. I'm a little bit higher on the Suns than, than Kevin is just because I, I think Eric Bledsoe last year when he was healthy was an incredibly good player. And, you know, if he, if he can play 70 games, 75 games for them this year, I think that can make a meaningful difference. But both of those chances added together are substantially smaller than the chance that none of the bottom three make it. So two is the, is the best guess. And as Kevin brought up, there is also an exceedingly small chance that either of the top two misses, and that's the other component of this, if you're trying to pick a straight number, is that makes it easier with two. Because there are some where you can say, oh, these teams are going to fall out, these teams are going to go in. But with this, you have two rock-solid teams, and then the other ones just aren't close enough. So, Danny, gun to your head, would you, would you have Kings or Suns in that third spot for this division? 
I'd have Kings, but I, if I were putting odds instead of that, I would have it at 35-40% that the Suns finish with a better record. But that's mm-hmm. not enough to put it the other way. Yeah, you're definitely a lot yeah. higher than, than, than I am. I, I want to go slightly off topic. How many playoff teams do you think from the Northwest and Southwest divisions? Hmm. Okay, so, yeah, I, I think the best way to, to start with that, so with the Southwest, you so the, the three Texas teams, San Antonio's a virtual lock, Dallas is fringe. Houston is fringe to me. They, you know, Houston, Houston, and I think you you have Houston over Dallas, right, Kevin? Oh, substantially so, yes. And then the other two teams in that division are Memphis and New Orleans. Yeah. So, God, that could go. So, I would say the most likely there is three, but it could be anywhere from two to five. But then you look at the West, I think, or the Northwest, I should say. You feel pretty com like. I would say OKC, Portland, and Utah are all more likely than not. I, I think is that fair? Yeah, I don't think they're going to trade. Yeah, I'd, I'd have I'd have those three from the Northwest. But then also Minnesota. What about them? Nah, nah. I think nah. they're. Not, I, think they're I think they're a year away. But they could be like they could be something similar to what Utah was last year, where they're pushing at it. But at the same time, I don't want to write them off. You know, like they, they, when you have towns and you have such a big coaching upgrade especially in terms of the defense and that was something I, I know Kevin you talked about in your RPM projections is like there is a reason to believe that their defense is going to be substantially better than the projections and I, I firmly agree with that and they have flaws but it's also possible that their flaws don't manifest themselves as much in the regular season just because if they play hard and they have more depth at point that power forward instead of just one guy that can actually work well enough. Yeah, I mean, I think the Northwest is just really interesting because there's no one dominant team with Durant leaving Oklahoma City. But I think you can make a case for, you know, four teams making the playoffs and even Denver being competitive. Uh, they were actually in the in the playoffs in those RPM projections in the fifth spot, although at the front of a very crowded pack of teams that you know includes Minnesota, who I I, I like to finish over them. But uh, Southwest has been the deepest team in the the West, a deepest conf- division in the Western Conference for a long period of time, and I think. I think that might not be the case. That might change this year. The Southwest is the hardest one to handicap. I think there's the most different things that could kind of happen. I think it's almost like process of elimination. Like if we think two from the Pacific, we think three from the Northwest, and we'll just give the Southwest the other three. I mean, I think the Spurs for sure. I think Memphis for sure. And I'd say Houston pretty likely. So I think that would leave Dallas and New Orleans out. I think New Orleans had a pretty tough summer in terms of, try, of, of trying to answer the question, did they get better? And they definitely needed to, you know, given how last year went out. Regarding the Timberwolves, I feel like I got a little burned by the Stan Van Gundy takeover in Detroit where I thought he was going to have that instant impact, like totally change things day one. And their first year didn't necessarily look radically different than the, the previous year. And then year two, he was really able to get into it and make them a significantly better team. I kind of wonder if there's going to be a similar thing with Thibodeau this year where he had a pretty discreet or kind of subdued offseason in terms of the moves that he made. There's going to be a natural growth process with the young guys that you're talking about, but I do wonder are we getting a little ahead of ourselves in terms of hoping and, and wishing for a team to be significantly better than they were last year, and maybe that's the two-year process instead of a one-year process. So that's kind of why I come down on the side of, the Timberwolves missing the playoffs. Uh, but I do think they're going to be a lot more fun, a lot more disciplined, a lot more logical in basically everything that they do offensively and defensively than they were last year or even the year before. Uh, but I guess if I had to pick my eight, it would be Oklahoma City, Portland, Utah, Golden State, Clippers, Spurs, Grizzlies, Rockets. Anyone feel different? 
Yeah, I'm pretty down on the Grizzlies, and not just because of RPM. I mean, that started kind of when I took a look at their rotation when I was doing their player profiles, and there's there's just not a lot there after the top four guys. Their I mean, backup uh, point know, guard spot is horrifying. It, it, it is, and they've got Mike Conley who missed a lot of time last year. They've got other injury risks in the starting lineup, and I feel like you know certainly uh, there's a lot of upside for that team to maybe even win as many as 50 games if everything goes right, but I think there's substantial downside if injuries had. So who is the team that you're putting in instead of Memphis? I think it's Minnesota. Wow. The team that's being undersold in all this, I'm not sure that they're in that group, is New Orleans, because New Orleans, when they were – non-catastrophic in terms of health they were the eight seed in a pretty strong year you know they, they outlasted that Oklahoma City team I think they had 45 wins is that about right for two years ago yes and while there are a lot of things that are you know messed up with that team and that organization they're deeper now than they were which is good and Anthony Davis is is talented enough to carry the rest of that team and so it's, it's kind of different than some other squads because it might actually be kind of analogous to a little bit of what Portland did last year of just having that incandescent star that can take you a long way and that you get enough from everyone else to really go. That doesn't mean they're going to have as bright a future because they have less flexibility and less young talent than Portland did last year. But I could certainly, you know, I I could see them getting a, a reasonable seat as well. But what's so fun this year in the West, which is different, is that basically almost any team outside of maybe the Lakers and if in Kevin's eyes, I think the Suns, where you can make a, a very reasonable argument, not even a super rosy one, that they could be good enough. I mean, for some of them, like Sacramento, arguing that they will be is harder. But that amount of volatility actually parallels the East, where there are a lot of East teams that are just right in the same level. And un, in an unusual turn, that includes the eighth spot in the playoffs. Yeah, the, the lower middle class parity is definitely there in the West. I mean, I did like that New Orleans. You were talking about their depth. I mean, I feel like they're protected against a holiday injury or a holiday extended absence much better than they have been in previous years. And I think that's sort of been, you know, one of the things that's really killed them uh, and, you know, led to the disappointment factor. Is like if you didn't have a backup plan, he's out 20 games, now what? And so I, I definitely think that you know, that is the kind of thing that can be a stabilizer. It can allow Davis to carry them, you know, even if you can't count on holiday because he's in and out. Uh, at least you've got something else to kind of keep you afloat. So I can see the argument for them being in the playoff mix. I just don't know if they'd be in my top eight. But I, I think they're a bubble team for sure. I could see Minnesota on the outside of the bubble. We haven't mentioned Dallas. They tend to get overlooked in these, uh, you know, these previews, and then they wind up being in the mix too. I could see them in the mix as well. So, yeah, I agree. The, the lower middle class parity is, is very, very strong in the West. Yeah, I mean, you're in a situation where – there's not a lot of teams that legitimately can, can expect to contend for a championship this season, but also very few teams that legitimately go into see next season with no hope of the playoffs. And the other huge impact of that is if a team falls off, there's a lot more space to really fall in terms of record and draft pick. Whereas in other years, the bottom was so weak that you really couldn't get past it. And that's not only, you know, the Lakers and the Sixers and those kind of teams. It was just even that next group, like the Suns last year. Like, there there, there were so many just weak teams. And I think this year, especially with the amount of money that was done, and a lot of teams have that kind of motivation, that if a middling team, you know, like one of these fringe playoff teams that we've been talking about in the in the 
Western Conference, but it's true in the East too, falls off. Like, let's say the equivalent of the Eric Bledsoe injury. Like, that team can fall like a stone this year really easily. And while that is a bad thing in terms of their playoff hopes, it can be a good thing in terms of really maximizing that, you know, the Sean Elliott kind of thing of just dropping if that happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it, which may, kind of forces you maybe to make that decision at some point during the season if you're a team that's in, in that middle ground. Like, are we legitimately contending for the playoffs or is it time to, to give up and, and try to race to the bottom? And will some of those teams that are on this fringe push hard enough to make it unrealistic? Because if it's, you know, if, if it's a little bit low, like if this parity hurts all of the teams and they just beat up on each other so it's around a 500 record or maybe a little bit lower, then you can see teams at the trade deadline going, oh, we're only three, four games away. But if, let's say, Minnesota or Memphis or some of these teams push it a little bit and then instead of being three to four games, it's six to eight, then that can change the decision making as well. Yep. Yeah, I do kind of wonder if we're in for those teams not being real aggressive in terms of trying to add the deadline, assuming the Warriors kind of run away with things like, uh, you know, we kind of expect. I wonder if that's going to be sort of a, a preventative factor where, like, if you're, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10 in the West and Golden State's already 10 games up on everybody and they're, they're clicking like people expected, do you really want to burn assets or take on money under those conditions? I mean, it almost seems like to a certain degree you wouldn't because what's really the upside, you know, I don't know. I I mean, I don't think you want to sell on your long-term future, but if you're a team like Sacramento has not been in the playoffs since, what, 2006? Minnesota hasn't been in the playoffs since 2004? If those teams are in the hunt, you best believe they they don't, they don't care what the uh, you know how few games they win against the Warriors or how uncompetitive they are. They just want to get there. The Bucks did that. Yeah, and I, you could, yeah I, I see what you're saying. I mean, you could also see teams like Denver, New Orleans, same thing, where like you just want to win a press conference and have a few home games and, and you know get the the gate revenue. And in the case of New Orleans, you know maybe you save your front office's job if you make the playoffs. So there's going to be some teams that probably have some you know different motivations, but I guess we'll see. Well, and also that you brought up Denver, they have just so many draft assets that it wouldn't even take them out of too much. Like I think Denver is one of the most interesting teams in the league for this year, just because they could go a couple of big different directions, and all of them are justified. You know, if they if they're doing well, they could give up some of their draft assets to kind of win now a little bit more, even though they have such a young backcourt. But at the same time, if they fall off, you know, they could trade Gallinari, they could trade Wilson Chandler, and they could so they could their variance is just crazy but I, I think that's part of what makes them fascinating yeah i think they're one of the yeah, hardest kevin, teams to predict for next season why did rpm put them in the playoffs kevin what was the what was the driving factor there i mean just they've got a lot of talent of young talent at this point i mean Jokic, you know led all centers in rpm last season you know so you take his his projection gallinari even though it's only for 50 games uh Darrell arthur another rpm favorite and uh, some of the guys with lower RPMs for them kind of got phased out. The, the Jakar Sampson's and the actual two pawns of the world, and, and Mike Miller I don't think is projected for almost any minutes. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I feel like that might be a – you might have a bug. You might have that Carmelo Anthony bug in your computer for the Nuggets. Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think they're going to win 40 games, but uh, I do think they're going to be more competitive than anyone thinks next year. Okay, I agree with that. They're pretty interesting, but I don't know. I wonder if I wonder if your projection is going to be enough because the over unders aren't out for another little bit to to change it on them because that's so far from what I would have bet if there had been no real published projections at that point that Vegas I think Vegas would have put them in the high twenties. 
I, I think they would have probably had at least 30, I would guess. But, uh, yeah, I, that's one thing I'm curious about. I don't know how we would find out that that happened, but I was curious. The last question, of course, we can talk about other stuff if you guys want. It doesn't have to be star or anything like that, but what players do you think will break out over the course of this year? So we'll be talking about them differently next July and August than we are right now. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, I guess I guess the Lakers are probably the first place you look in this division. Devin Booker, you could say maybe he already had his breakout in Phoenix, and, and he's the most obvious candidate for them. The Clippers, with all their veterans, you're probably not looking at any of those guys. Probably not anyone in Golden State. Maybe in Sacramento, but as, as Ben, I think, mentioned, not a lot of guys with upside. It's, it's mostly Ben McLemore, if he can kind of reclaim his career, and maybe Colley Stein taking a step forward. So uh, to me, I think D'Angelo Russell is the number one guy. If he really establishes himself as a quality pick-and-roll point guard this year, playing more of that style with Luke Walton, with some guys who actually can play the pick-and-roll a little bit, you know, even if not ideal personnel for that, uh, so I, I think he's going to have a dramatically better offensive season, and defense, the less said, the better. Yeah, I think the two obvious guys, Booker and Russell, for sure. Uh, you know, I think Russell it just couldn't have gone any worse last year, and I think he was the one who was the most impacted by Kobe's presence, even though they didn't play the same position, just in terms of feeling like it was his team, feeling like he was a valued member of what they were trying to do, uh, feeling like he was a priority for his coach. Uh, and I think all those questions got resolved this summer, uh, and now it's you know time to see what he looks like on the court. I thought he looked a lot better in summer league than he did last year, for whatever that's worth. Booker, I think that's pretty self-evident. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know in terms of the Warriors, in terms of the Clippers, I'm not sure I see anybody on there. Uh, in terms of the Kings, you know, I, you know, if I'm Jaeger, I'm playing basically all my vets. You know, if they're giving me all these vets and they're expecting you to win games and, and try to make a playoff push. You know, guys like Macklemore, I could see that going negative and going south as fast as it could go north with him. You know, I mean, I could, that, that could be a situation where if he doesn't come in and looking like he's going to be a player, like he might not see a ton of time uh, just because well, of the expectations. And in that case, he might break out. He just won't break out in the Pacific Division. Yeah, he might break out for somebody else. That's you know, that's a good way to look at it. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty short list of potential breakout guys. Is there anybody else on the Suns? I mean, they have a lot of guys who we've kind of been waiting and waiting and waiting on. I mean, is anybody here believe in Alex Len or, or TJ uh, Warren could be you know, a possibility? There, like, yeah, I, he was a sleeper who I had on my list too. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I just did the Suns player profiles yesterday, and uh, spoiler alert, they did not make me real optimistic about Alex Len. I mean, I, it, you know, Warren is fine. He, he kind of, I think he mostly is what he is, other than if the 40% he shot from three-point range last year was legitimate. But, you know, he's probably a bench scoring guy and maybe not much more than that. So I don't I don't see a breakout for him. It's it's hard, I think, I mean, what about because their guys got playing time late. Like, I think Booker would have been an obvious one, but he got that opportunity already, and then he was so good because he randomly played in Summer League. Like, I think that that really changed it for him. The other I, I, the other ones that I would add in are more of, like, perception elevation. And so Zaza Pachulia is a, a good example of that, where I don't think he's going to play better than he has the last two years, but he'll be doing it on a much more visible team. And so I think that could change it. And then... The other guy like that is DeAndre. Like I think DeAndre is is pretty big, but 
there's a possibility that he can, you know, not only be an all-star, but be first-team all-NBA this year. And, like, that's that's kind of amazing just in terms of everything with him. And then the third guy I have to mention, just because the Warriors don't have enough depth, is Patrick McCaw. I think there's a possibility that he becomes kind of like this cult favorite because the Warriors are going to play a lot of garbage time. They're going to play a lot of garbage time on national television that he could become somebody who gets a lot of intrigue. Oh, yeah, I should have mentioned McCaw is one of the rookies. I'm excited to see. That, guy, that guy's fun to watch. What about uh, Larry Nance for this conversation? Yeah, they'll have a lot I mean, of garbage maybe time, he- too. I mean, maybe it's a situation where the Lakers do, uh, you know, change their opinion of Julius Randle and and start to think that Nance is a better fit for them at power forward, maybe. Trade Randle to the Kings? (laughs) (laughs) I I just think, I mean, I kind of think, isn't Nance just a better player? I mean, right now he, he almost certainly is, yeah, I would say. Randall's this weird combination because he's horrible defensively and he's interesting offensively, but he's not good yet. You know, there are those players, it's kind of like maybe the the analog is Andrew Wiggins' defense, where it's like, he could be good there eventually, he's just not there now. And so with Randall, when when you have to turn both of those things around at the same time, that's a lot harder than Nance, who can basically be an effort big and be better than that. Well, I guess maybe the one possibility is what if they decide... Hey, we've already got enough scoring and playmate. You know, we've already got enough shot creation in our starting lineup with Russell and Clarkson in the backcourt. We'd rather have Randall as kind of the offensive focal point of the second unit, and then start Larry Nance so he's a pick and roll threat along the, their starting guards. I would absolutely be in favor of that. As you can tell from this podcast, I'm in favor <laughs> of Randall never playing a single minute for the Lakers. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But no, I, I think that it's a pretty logical way. And I do think if you gave a guy like Steve Kerr the Lakers roster, I think that's where he would start in terms of trying to make them as good as they could possibly be and, and to try to prioritize the right guys in terms of their development and minutes and touches. I think the first thing he would look at is, okay, Randall, you're not a priority. Uh, and I don't know if that's something you can do in training camp or if that's something you have to kind of manage, uh, you know, after giving him a shot for the first couple months of the season. But that would be the direction that I would be going if I was the Lakers. And uh, I think the beneficiaries from that, like we've talked about, guys like Ingram and Nance, you know, the less Randall plays or the lower role that he has, uh, the more you can ask those guys to do. It could be harder to do that with Randall during the season than before the season because it's a less obvious demotion. It could be, you know, then you can frame it in terms of, oh, Luke Walton has a different vision for the offense and all this kind of stuff. Whereas if, as we expect, they're going to be bad at the beginning and then you do it, then it's like, oh, you're, it's kind of like you're getting put to the minor leagues, you know, that sort of a thing. But if you do it from the beginning, you can, you can explain it away in a way, in a way that is not really available once you've already started the season. Yeah. Well, that's even better. You know, I, I'm in favor of that. Let's do it right now. Let's demote him today. <laughs> I mean, that was Kerr's first big move when he got to Golden State was convincing Iguodala to come off the bench. So maybe Walden does the same. Incidentally, that's a move that I would support them reversing moving forward just because I think, I think that created a, a circumstance with Iguodala and Livingston that ended up being a little bit too duplicative. But, of course, it's a very different circumstance than it was. And also that helped lead the way for telling David Lee to go sit on the bench, which was also very important. Wait, wait, do you think they should bring Clay off the bench? No, I think they should start. I think they should. I'm not saying they should necessarily start Iguodala, start Iguodala, but he should play a lot more minutes with those main guys, and that would involve the, you know, the whatever the new version of the death lineup is called. Going in that realm and then having the second unit be more of Livingston and just kind of David West and Pachulia and that type of thing. Hmm. 
it's a very different concept for the team actually working on a piece on it. I mean, I hope that we see more intermixing of the... This is actually a common theme in the Pacific Division. I hope that we see more staggering of players throughout this division. Golden State to make sure that they have one of Duran or Curry on the floor at all times and just let that guy you know, be the leading scorer at some point, as familiar as they are with that role. And then you can't talk about staggering without talking about the Clippers and Doc Rivers' refusal to use Blake Griffin when as the like the primary creator when Chris Paul is on the bench. Yeah, I'm all for just pulling over the quick hook for Durant that Oklahoma City was going to, and and just sort of letting Curry be the main guy starting the first and third, and then letting Durant just torch whoever your second unit defender is, or screwing with the other team's rotation so badly that they're trying to match up with him and letting him go nuts. You know, I think that's a no-brainer, and it's also a good way to keep the minutes off of. Uh, both Curry and Durant during the regular season. I think you can, you know, you don't really have to push those guys too hard uh, if you do things you know, like this. Uh, and then in terms of the Clippers, I think we've been, you know, harping on this one for what two or three years. And Dan, you've been real vocal about that. But you know, especially given some of the names that they lost this summer and, and the level of turnover that they had, you know, at the bottom end of their rotation, I think it makes as much sense as ever for them to go that direction. There's another staggering that's going to be important just due to supply, and that's Sacramento's people who can actually create. Because if they play Collison and Gay together a lot, their second unit is just not going to be able to generate any offense. So whether that be you know having Collison bounce around a little bit, having Gay bounce around a little bit, or even DeMarcus Cousins, like what I've advocated for years with DeMarcus Cousins is that you give him a quick hook early on, have a more defensive center, and then have him just massacre second units and make that a part of his role. So he still starts and finishes games, but just switch it switch around and make him the offensive locus of their second unit. Just to because now that that was always true just because I thought playing cousins against those guys would just be a bloodbath and teams aren't going to change their rotations against the Kings. They're not good enough. But also now, just because of how little creation they have, I think it makes sense. I, I think you're a lot higher on Rudy Gay with the ball on his hands than I am. Well, who else do they have? I mean, so if if, if you were to rank their players at creating for themselves and others, Collison is number one. No, who else could be considered for number two? A flaw? I mean, I was joking earlier that Cousins would would be their backup point guard, but I think he might be second on this list. <laughs> I mean, it's too bad he can't pass to himself. Yet mitosis? He could get so angry that he could split into two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he runs the pick and roll with himself. Uh, that'll be great. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think your point's well taken. It's it's a big fall off, and none of the options are very palatable. And I think they're going to figure that out pretty quickly. Like, I don't think it's going to take that long. The first time they play five on five in training camp, they're going to realize they only have one point guard. They would. I, I think Mario Chalmers should do something else, but they would be a great landing spot for him if what he wanted to do was rehab his value because he would be starting for them soon. Yeah, it's also weird. A guy like like Jared Jack. I mean, I know he was coming off the injury or whatever, but like, I don't know. I feel like there was guys out there that it would be better than nothing. I, I think Pelton is objecting to me saying that Chalmers is a better player than Darren Collison. I, I am objecting to that. Why Why are you so biased against guys from UCLA? Collison is <laughs> Collison is a different kind of point guard, and I think that Chalmers, because Collison doesn't, even though he has the game to function off the ball, I think it just makes him intensely unhappy. And you can do some different things with Chalmers, and also I think I think his defense is would be his defense would be intriguing with that starting five, which is probably going to be let's say flawed defensively. So Collison's a fine player, but I think that 
Chalmers makes some more sense, and I also think that giving Darren a little bit more free reign on the second unit might be good for him. I mean, I think we should consider the possibility that Chalmers just is a marginal NBA player after the Achilles injury. I mean, that's also that's, that's also a very good point because I was thinking more of what he was last year for the Grizzlies, and there's a very real chance he won't be that anymore. Right. Well, from this conversation, I'm now rethinking whether the Suns might actually finish above the Kings in the division order. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> The Suns are really young, too. Like, there there are a lot of questions with them. I think one part that makes me more comfortable about their possibilities is just that they actually have point guard depth. Like, we, you can think about what happened in New Orleans last year and just how, or the Nets, of how catastrophic it is to not have people who can run your offense. And the Suns don't have that problem. They could trade one of their point guards and they'd still be fine. And so that is a positive for them that Sacramento doesn't have. The problem is they have a lot of young guys who they're probably actually going to play and their defense could be good, but I'm really not sold on it. I mean, Brandon Knight makes a lot of sense in Sacramento. Like that's an obvious, there's something there, isn't there? I love it. Make it happen. He also People makes sense the, with the, the Bucks. The quota. <laughs> like Brandon, Brandon Knight on the Bucks would have made. I mean, obviously they did other things, but just because uh, I think Knight's best role is playing primarily off the ball, kind of a secondary guy who can run it when you need it, and so that can work well. But of course, he's still better than everyone Sacramento has, so that's fine too. Could put him in Orlando. Here's a question for you: What if we merge the best of the Kings and the Suns rosters together? Would they finish better than third in this division? So would that's they a good beat? Question. Would they beat the Clippers? Yeah, would they beat the Clippers? Okay, so the, so they would start Bledsoe, Cousins, Dudley, Gay, and and Devin Booker. Ooh, that's a good team. That's, that's not much of a defensive team, but uh, no, it is. Points on you, Bledsoe. Yeah, I would say I would say their expected value would probably be a little bit lower than the Clippers, but I'd say they'd have a, a real chance of finishing above them, just given age and everything else. That would be such a weird team, though. Yeah. What if we added the Lakers into the mix? So now you have all three of the rosters. I feel like you still would be below the Clippers. You'd be really <laughs> deep then, though. Like you'd have a lot of like, a lot of good players, so you could withstand injury. Like adding D'Angelo and Dang. Well, that's the question. If you added all three of those teams, which team would have the fewest number of players on the twelve man on the twelve man active roster? I guess it'd be the Lakers. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, the Lakers would only have well, two. Like, how sad is it that Mozgov wouldn't make that team, and yet he's getting paid, what, 72 million? 64? 64. 64, yeah. That's incredible. It's like the thanks thanks Obama meme. Just thanks, Jim Buss. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. God, that's incredible. (laughs) Well, I think that sums up the Pacific Division pretty well, is that the (laughs) the fall-off is so so drastic from the, the top two that you could combine the other three and still not get to that second seed. Yeah, and not even touch the number one. <laughs> no, not even close. I think you could actually put the other four. I think you could throw the Clippers in and still not touch the Warriors. You can make a dream team from the other four teams, and I'd still rather have the Warriors roster. I mean, the the boogie DeAndre Blake Griffin front court is is a fascinating three man combination. Who would the, their their small forward would still be shaky? Like that's the most incredible thing about those teams. <laughs> you have, I guess, dang. I guess you'd start dang at the three. Oh. Dang would, Dang would be the KD stopper. Yeah, you could have, uh, I guess, you, well, yeah, I guess Boogie could be the sixth man, so you could get your your second unit running around him. Uh, Blake could be your four. You'd be uh, starting four be Clippers. One, obviously. Like, that's incredible. Like, if yeah, you combine the bottom four teams, you'd be starting four <laughs> Clippers. Ben, I'm surprised you're yeah. not demanding that Brandon Ingram start for this, too. Well, the, the motivations would be a little bit different if we were merging four teams. We wouldn't need to just, like, 
eat whatever small scraps we could get out of Ingram as a rookie. I mean, we could actually try to go for it this year. I'm surprised Ben isn't pushing, pushing hard for Marcel Huertas, the most viable player, because he's also incredibly entertaining. Yeah, Huertas. Uh, well, he's got some real serious fans at the Staples Center. They have, the Colt Classic thing is going on with him for sure. So I still think the Warriors are better than our than our four Clippers plus dang squad, though, don't you? Probably, but you're getting a little closer now. Yeah, it's pretty close. Having Cousins off the bench is pretty nice. Uh, Cousins versus Andy. I think that's pretty <laughs> excited that. <laughs> Second unit matchup. Yeah, but how many fouls would Verichau draw on Cousins? Cousins would probably uh, get, he'd get two fouls in the first 45 seconds and then maybe get tossed. Yeah, Verichau would have very explicit instructions to try to get Cousins ejected as soon as possible. But even better than that, in some ways, would be the possibility of DeMarcus versus JaVale McGee, which would just be glorious. <laughs> yeah. Actually, he was the guy who was missing from some of our answers earlier that maybe should have been in the mix for, like, who are we most excited to see besides Kevin Durant? Best newcomer. <laughs> are, are we talking in the preseason here? Yeah. You don't think he's going to win the job? No. The 250000 they guaranteed Elliott Williams suggests otherwise. Uh, D-League. What a sad state of affairs. Important Santa Cruz warrior, Elliott Williams. I mean that that's the 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 most kind of remarkable thing about that also is thinking about that position is that someone is going to get bought out and consider the warriors that could just completely mess with all of this. Like if the equivalent of Joe Johnson happens this year and goes to the Warriors, it's just nasty. Yeah, we should probably yeah, be protecting that. I think it's going to be a two-team arms race for those kinds of guys. And the Warriors have more playing time probably to offer than the Cavs do, just because the Cavs are so set as long as they re-sign JR. Yeah, but see, LeBron can get you on the uninterrupted podcast features. You know, he can raise your media profile. So there's lots of things you got to consider if you're a struggling veteran looking to extend your career. Well, and it's great to be on Clutch Sports as long as they can get bird rights on you, which is why, which is a huge potential <laughs> benefit of their trade exception. I, I think that's a piece that that one of us should work on for whoever for whichever outlet of players who make less than the the Anderson Verjao trade exception who should sign with Clutch Sports so they can be traded into that exception. <laughs> LeBron's shopping list. Any anyone anything else you guys want to discuss? I think that mostly covered it from my standpoint. Yeah, I think we're, I think we pretty much hit all angles here. Although we did kind of arrive at pretty predictable conclusions. So I don't know. Do we want to, like, make a prediction of if something happens crazy, what will it be? Uh, Kings trade Cousins midseason? Ooh. Okay, that's one. Which Ooh. is more Which is more likely to happen during the season, Kings trade Cousins or Suns trade Bledsoe? I, I think Suns trade. I'd say Bledsoe. But that kind of relies on him staying healthy. But, they've, you know, the Booker thing seems so real, and he's going to need to have the ball in his hands. But that seems like a pretty obvious tension point. And I think with everything you said about the market for Cousins being kind of questionable right now, I think that could hold that one back a little bit, where I don't think Bledsoe's commanding quite as much. I think he could fit uh, different places. Well, we were talking about some teams, you know, maybe trying to buy their way into the playoffs. You guys were mentioning earlier a guy like Bledsoe could sort of be that type of player and not be super difficult to move. So I think a Bledsoe trade to me would be more likely. But I, I think Brandon Knight's the odd man. Or they could be traded for each other. I suppose so. I think that's actually a fairly logical Cousins destination because they have weird assets and they could, you know, Bledsoe ties in with their kind of win-now stuff in the new arena. And uh, Cousins ties in with Robert Sarver's constant desire to win yesterday. And have a guy who's still <laughs> cost-controlled for another year. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Kevin. 
Thanks, Antonio Wingfield. Thanks again to Ben Golliver and Kevin Pelton for taking the time. You can read Ben at Sports Illustrated and follow him at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. You can read Kevin Pelton at ESPN Insider and follow him at K Pelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N. was a lot of fun talking with them and the end riff on the kind of dream team combinations against the other people was something that was very intriguing to me just because I never really thought of it on, on that conceit, but it is really, really impressive how far the Warriors and Clippers have outpaced the rest of this division, though. Of course, those teams are really disappointing, so... Hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to do. I've had a couple of pieces come out recently. I wrote a schedule analysis for the Warriors for The Athletic, and then I wrote a piece that some of you would probably be interested in. It was actually partially inspired by emails that I get sometimes about my path as a sports writer and advice to people who want to go into sports and maybe other other businesses, and that's at Real GM. It's also uh, on my Twitter bio and all that sort of thing. And so you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Rue. You also have a Facebook page, uh, Daniel LaRue MBA, and I, as I say every time, you can reach out to me. Twitter is a great way to do it. You can also do email if it's longer form. That's MBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond when I can. My promise is to read it. My promise is not to respond, but I am getting better. I'm actually closing the unread gap in my emails, though I've read everything, but just to, I, I keep it unread to respond. So that has been kind of a pleasure to kind of get back into all that kind of thing and, and really get into shape there. And writing the piece about my path was certainly interesting. I also actually did a podcast on that with Celtic Stuff Live. They heard that I was going to do that piece and asked me if I would come on their show. And so that is the audio version of that. And I've posted that as well. So you can check that out. It was was a lot of fun to do. And of course, check out our sponsors for this episode. It is Blue Apron, a phenomenal food delivery service you go to blueapron.com slash real gm you can get three meals for free and free shipping and our new sponsor athletes collective which is high quality apparel athletic wear for discounted prices because it doesn't have those logos and it's great stuff i've been using it for a few months now you can go to athletescollective.com and use the real gm promo code for 15 percent off your first order free shipping free returns in the u.s and canada and doing those things also lets them know that you came from us which helps me keep the show running because that means that not only will they want to keep advertising with us but other people will as well it's a great way to do that And also you can leave a review on iTunes or whatever you use and give it a rating, give it a review. That really does help. And just spreading the word. I mean, this is certainly a different type of podcast compared to most. And so if you find somebody or know somebody who would enjoy this, then you can let them know. And that's something that not only do I do that with my friends for things that I listen to, but I really appreciate it when they do that with me. And it happens all the time. So Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
Randall's has everything you need every day. Make us your one-stop grocery store for all things fresh and delicious at a value you'll appreciate. For a special dinner this week, shop at the Remarkable Card and get fresh snow crab clusters from the seafood department for only $6.99 a pound. And for healthy snacking, pick up fresh red seedless grapes from the produce department for just 97 cents a pound. Fresher seafood, sweeter produce, better prices. Randall's, proudly serving Texas families since 1966.